0: Romans 2, beginning at verse 1. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So, when you, a mere man pass judgment on them, and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when His righteous judgment will be revealed. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. That is our reading tonight. There are all sorts of little side trails we could go on in these verses, a lot of interesting uh, things going on. We're going to look at at the big picture of these verses tonight, the Lord willing together. The main outline of this uh, great book of Romans is sin, salvation, service. That's where the writers of the Heidelberg Catechism came up with their idea of to structure the catechism in that way. There are all sorts of catechisms, dozens and dozens, looking at the Ten Commandments, looking at the Lord's Prayer and the Apostles' Creed, as the Heidelberg Catechism does. But the Heidelberg Catechism is unique in how the authors decided to structure it after the teaching of Paul in the book of Romans. Paul hits sin hard at the beginning of Romans. Uh, We we hit it hard in our verses last week with Pastor Matthew from Romans 1.18 through to the end of the chapter. And and you might think, okay Paul, we get the picture. Calm down. We We don't need to do this anymore. But Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has more to say. There's more that we need to hear about sin, apparently. And I believe tonight it's this in this passage. He is showing us just how high God's glory sets the bar for human beings. He's showing you just how high the bar is set through the glory of God for us. And I believe our verses point to God's glory, even though you don't see that term in our verses. You might remember when we've talked about this idea of the glory of God before, that God's glory is really, one way to look at it and understand the glory of God is to understand God's glory as all of his attributes put together. God's glory is everything God is. And we learn about our God in this passage here. We learn about His character. In verse 4, we have three attributes of God listed. Kindness, and sometimes it's translated goodness. Kindness, goodness is the same thing. And then, two less familiar attributes tolerance, and patience. And those are all nice, pleasant attributes, but we also, in this whole section, read about God's wrath. It's in 1 verse 18, and then also again in our text, in verse 5, we read of God's wrath and we read of God's judgment and God's wrath and His judgment point us to another attribute of our God, and that's what we call God's justice. All of what we learn about God, God's glory, His character, according to Paul in these verses, it sets the bar high for us, much higher than we would set the bar for ourselves. And And this has three implications that I want to explore with you tonight. God's glory sets the bar high so that, first of all, we would view ourselves realistically. Paul writes pointedly about God's wrath regarding sin in the world in chapter 1. We hit it well last week with Pastor Matthew, and then in our verse... Paul says, you, therefore, have no excuse. It's almost like he's been talking to us and and sort of coming alongside us and and, and, and looking at the world out there with us and said, see see what's going on out there in society. The impurity, the greed, the malice, the God-haters, the arrogant people, the ruthless people, and as as Paul's pointing and as we look out we're like yeah we know things it's pretty bad in our world all these terrible sinners and and man we could go on all day of of giving examples that that we're aware of of how bad things are in the world but then in our chapter Paul it's Paul's point out, it's then it's like he, he turns his apostolic finger at us and says, At whatever point you judge the other, you're condemning yourself because you do the same things. So chapter one is looking at the pagan world, and then it's like chapter two is throwing a bucket of cold water on the religious person who might be shaking her head at all the evil out there. God's glory. Who God is makes us look at ourselves too. People discuss who Paul is referring to specifically here. And and, and some people say that in our verses he's talking to the Jewish people especially. And others think he's not. What is clear is this is a message for people who might assume they are okay because they are not outwardly as bad as all the people that Paul talked about earlier in chapter 1. It's for people who might easily look outward and judge others. In verses 17 and following, which we're probably not going to have a separate sermon on, so I just want to say something about that. um, There... Paul is clearly talking about the Jews. And he's highlighting for the Jewish people in that day, he's talking about the law, which was so near and dear to the Jewish people, and circumcision. The Jewish people in Paul's day tended to assume that everything was right between them and God because they had those two things. They assumed they were automatically saved because they were part of the covenant people because they had the law, they cherished the law and because they were circumcised when they were younger and Paul is saying that they shouldn't make such assumptions. And the reality is we all need to hear these verses. How are we all guilty and deserving of God's wrath? Exactly. You know, he says it but but how so? Well, A lot of these things at the end of the last chapter that Paul listed as wickedness, um, envy, ruthlessness, faithlessness, all this stuff, a lot of those things aren't about our actions, our outward stuff, but they were about attitudes and stuff in the heart. And and So that means it's not about whether or not we are axe murderers, what we do outwardly, it's about what's going on in our hearts, is what Paul is saying. And Jesus makes that really clear in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew five twenty one and 22 says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. Anyone who murders is subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is just angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And Then later he says, You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so, a spouse in a committed Christian marriage can be just as deserving of God's wrath based on stuff going on in his heart as a more obvious sinner. You know, and and how many of us can say honestly, we've never ever gotten angry with anyone? I think sometimes we get angry. So, Paul is challenging you tonight. He says you, and of course, that you goes to me as well. John Stott writes, we are far quicker and harsher in our criticism of others than of ourselves, and that's true. We find all kinds of excuses for our own sins You know, it happened because I was tired, I I was provoked. Well, it could have been a lot worse, I could have said a lot harsher stuff, I was having a bad day, I was feeling lonely, I was stressed. So we give ourselves a lot of slack, but we're very fast to notice sin and condemn it in others without considering all the extenuating circumstances that we consider in ourselves to let ourselves off the hook. Al Capone, for years, of course, was the FBI's public enemy number one uh, due to his crimes uh, in Chicago. He was a bad dude. Um, He's buried, right, just down the road a few miles east in uh, Mount Carmel on the north side of Roosevelt Road. On Wikipedia, I found a list of over 30 people he killed. Listen to what this guy said about his life. I have spent the best years of my life giving people the lighter pleasures, helping them to have a good time. And all I get is abuse, the existence of a hunted man. And that's human nature. To let ourselves off the hook. And we have this tendency ourselves to excuse our own wrong behavior. So think about that. If a hardened criminal like That guy could think that well of himself. How much more capable aren't we of of making excuses for our sins as sort of normal people in society? Normal, at least, people who aren't going around, you know, killing or doing terrible crimes. That's why Romans 2 was written. Romans 1. The human race has turned away from God. Romans 2, buddy, lady, you've turned away from God also. That's what it's here for in the Bible. John Stott says, we work ourselves up into a state of self-righteous indignation over the disgraceful behavior of other people while the very same behavior seems not nearly so serious when it's ours rather than theirs. And so we have a very high bar for other people and we lower the bar for ourselves. God's glory raises the bar high where it should be for us so that we are viewing ourselves realistically and that's that's all this this is about being realists friends this isn't about being negative about life this isn't about a pessimistic view of life this is about being realistic looking at life the universe people our hearts our sin our holy god realistically God's Word wants us to look at things as they really are instead of fooling ourselves, instead of suppressing the truth, we are deserving of the wrath of God is what Scripture is teaching us, what the Lord is telling us through His Word in Romans 1 and 2. But there's more as we look at the character of our God. God's glory sets the bar high so that we can also, secondly, view God thankfully. Paul is going to show us Jesus and our salvation full on in all details in our upcoming chapters. But he gives us a glimpse of a reason for our thanksgiving in these three attributes in verse 4. God's kindness, God's tolerance, and God's patience. And I want to start with maybe the lesser known of those two attributes. Um, Tolerance first. Sometimes we could call tolerance forbearance God's holding back, God's delay, God's clemency, to use a little fancier word. The reality is that humanity's offenses and our own offenses should bring an immediate outpouring of fierce judgment. Immediately. But they don't. They don't. And we saw this from the very beginning. Adam and Eve were to die the day that they ate of the fruit, but they didn't. They died spiritually, yeah, but they did not die physically. And the reality is they would never die eternally because of God's salvation through a future deliverer who would defeat Satan. And our first parents believed God's promise of Jesus coming and they were saved. So God... Withheld, and God's forbearance continues today. We sin, but God does not immediately implement the punishment we deserve. He bears with us, He endures the constant affront to His great majesty and holiness, and He even offers us salvation. That we are not all dead now and in hell now is an evidence of God's tolerance. In other words, he has not given us yet the punishment we deserve. That's a little bit the awesome tolerance of God for which we're so thankful. The next attribute is patience. Sometimes we call it long-suffering and patience has to do with God's tolerance over the course of a long time, over many years. Patience means that God bears with sin for a long time. He was patient with those who sinned in the early age of the human race before the flood. There was Cain's murder. There was Lamech's boasting about killing a man just for wounding him. Him, And then Genesis 6-5, The inclination of the thoughts of man was evil all the time. The inclination of man was only evil all the time. And you know what he did? He spared those wicked people for another 120 years as Noah built the ark. That is God's patience. And later, God was patient with his people after they entered Canaan, and right away started following the gods of that land and the customs, and he warned them, sent deliverers and kings and prophets and and preserved them. That's all God's patience. The beauty of that attribute of God. And think of your own life tonight. Think of the years of life that you've lived and and think of your own failures and your sins and and your shortcomings and how sometimes as as God's children, we, we succumb to the same temptation many times, these same sins that can entrap us do multiple times. And yet God's forbearance, his tolerance, it goes on and on and on for you and for me too. Praise God. That is His patience for us. The first of the three attributes is kindness or goodness. Goodness. And the word, our word God, the word for God comes from uh, the old Anglo-Saxon language and it's connected with the word good. That's why God and good are so close to one another in our language. God is kind of literally means the good. And you noticed in the Belgic Confession, that first article, how strongly they emphasized the goodness of God. They said he was good, and the end of it is that he's the overflowing fountain of all all good. So goodness gets at really the, the heart of what God is. And we see God's goodness from the very beginning of time. After creation, he said, it is good. And though there's sin and brokenness in our world, we continue to see God's goodness in creation. And as Paul says in chapter 1, we can see God's goodness so much and to such an extent that it leaves people without excuse. People should be able to look out and see God in nature, in our world. Um, And you think of the the beauty of nature and and little cells in us and, and and the expansiveness of the universe, and trees, and birds, and rocks, and minerals, our own, think about our own bodies, all the arms, and legs, and our eyes, and our brain, it's, it's mind-boggling, it's, it's beautiful, and every single piece of that that we're thinking about, it's all evidence that God is good, it's his goodness all around us, and in our own lives, and it, in his continual, providential care of the world. We see his goodness. And we see God's goodness in salvation. He sent Jesus to bear his wrath for our sins on the cross. A couple weeks ago we saw the summary of the message of Romans when we read where we read in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness by faith from first to last. Jesus is that righteousness of God, the book of Romans tells us. Jesus is God's goodness personified. And through faith in Jesus, we get over that very high bar. That is how kind our God is. That is how good our God is. And so we can view him with thankfulness. We can be thankful for his goodness, thankful for Jesus, thankful for salvation, thankful that he provided the way to get over that high bar. Just one additional thought that we're led to from our verses. God's glory sets the bar high so that we can view ourselves realistically, God thankfully, And also, I believe, so that we can view those around us, others, patiently. If God is patient with you and with me and with all of mankind, holding off that final judgment while the gospel call to repentance in Jesus goes out, then it makes sense that, that patience is our call too. We're certainly called to be clear on what is sin and what isn't sin in our own lives and in, in society. But as we look at others, as we look outward, I believe our call is to be patient. One of the greatest Reformed pastors and theologians that you maybe haven't heard of is Gespertus Vutius. He lived in the 1600s. He taught pastors in seminary. He wrote theology. He spent much of the hours of his life helping orphans. He preached. He wrote the first Reformed booklet on church planting. He was a pretty well-rounded dude. He had some things to say about our tendency to judge others more strictly than ourselves. He said it should be the opposite. We should be strict towards ourselves. And we should be strict and hard on ourselves in this sense that we are seeking in our own life a close walk with God, that we work hard against that human tendency to let ourselves off the hook when we are really sinners in need of grace. That we work passionately on those fruits of the Spirit in our lives. That we bear down and get serious about putting off that old man of sin so that he doesn't have that foothold in our hearts and lives anymore. So we're hard on ourselves in that sense. And then for others, we show much grace. We're patient. We don't know their lives. We don't know all their circumstances. God does. He's the judge. Let Him take care of it. And we work on ourselves. That Our, our job is to make sure we take our own sins seriously and repent and seek refuge in Jesus. And then, also our job is to support the mission of the church to share the gospel, to share the good news. And there is good news in the face of humankind's predicament. God, in His goodness, sent Jesus. And through faith in Him, you can be saved. And there's still time to repent because of God's great tolerance And because of God's patience, to God be the glory for showing us our need for Him, for giving us salvation, free and clear, and for helping us have a patient attitude towards those around us as we share the good news of Jesus. Amen.